0: In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Pray with me, please. Father in heaven, this is serious business. We are opening your word, hearing your voice. Now, Lord, please help us us to listen as those who are hearing the voice of God. Pray that we would... Respond swiftly, and I pray, dear Lord, that we would respond joyfully. Be with me as I give the word today. I pray that my concentration would be fixed upon you and your word, and I pray, dear Lord, that I would be filled with joy and that I would have great liberty as I present the word. Lord, please do something very unusual in this service. For your glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Judges 21-25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, we are currently studying the Old Testament book of Judges, and today we're going to be looking at chapter 6. The book of Judges is a repetitive book. We have the cycle of sin and servitude, supplication, salvation, solace, and sin over and over and over, and again we see that pattern. The book of Judges is rough. There are a lot of violent and salacious stories, almost as if everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Today, however, we get a reprieve from the roughness. Number three, the book of Judges is rhetorical. It's not constructed chronologically, but thematically, with a lot of symbolism and a lot of irony. And number four, book of Judges is redemptive. This is the most important one. It points us to Christ and it demonstrates how Jesus helps his people. When I originally set out to preach through this book, it was my intention to dedicate one sermon to each judge. So for example, the last time we were together, I covered chapters four and five. I covered Deborah in her entirety. And I was going to try to do that with Gideon, but there is no possible way. It is 100 verses, chapters 6, 7, and 8. I was way too ambitious. And so today we're only going to be able to cover a third of that, and that is Judges chapter 6. And even so, I feel as though I'm just going to skim the surface of these 40 verses. I want us to move through the text, verse by verse, with these seven headings brought to you by the letter P. P. We're going to see the problem, the prophet, the promise, the peace, the provocation, the power, and then finally the proof. Thus far in our study of judges, we have learned one overarching truth, and that is that God is relentlessly merciful to undeserving people. And again today, we are going to see his mercy on display to the undeserving. Uh, But let's be very, very clear. These people, the nation of Israel, they were forgetful people. They were unthankful people. Uh, They had a gravitational pull into rebellion and idolatry. And what God would do in love when his people would stray is that he would not leave them alone, but he would chase after them and he would get their attention through discipline in order to cause them to repent, which brings us to point number one, the problem We see the problem in verses 1 through 6. Notice, as I read it, that God uses an alliance of three groups of people in order to discipline his covenant people, Israel. Hear the word of the Lord. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years, and the hand of midian overpowered israel and because of midian the people of israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves in the strongholds in other words they were not living in their homes when the midianites would come into town they would go up into the hills and live as the flintstones they were cavemen they would go up and live in the caves when the midianites would come verse 3 for whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites, and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. One of the covenant curses that God promised uh, if the people would break his law is that invaders would come in, and one of the things that the invaders would do is that they would steal their livestock. It is the equivalent of taking a mechanic's tools. And and not only are they eating all of their crops, but understand what's happening here. The Midianites would be these nomadic people. They would wander around, and when they would come into town, crossing from the east to the west, across the Jordan River, into Israel, they would bring all of their animals with them. Why? Because their animals could graze on the land of the Israelites, and then what they would do is they would have a supermarket sweep, they would go through the land, they would take all of the produce from the land, until they got tired of doing that, and they would continue moving west all the way over to the Gaza Strip. They would move all the way over there. What would the Israelites do? Well. They would farm the land. They would take care of the animals. And then when they would see the Midianites coming, they would go up into the hills and they would hide. The Midianites would come and eat all their food and they would move through. And this happened for seven years. Verse 6. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out For help to the Lord. That was the purpose of this. The reason God sent the Midianites is so that the people would be miserable, so that they would call out to the Lord for help. Um, Every week I tell you that the book of Judges is repetitive, that there is a cycle which begins with sin and it always leads to suffering or servitude. And as you read it and hear it over and over, do you ever ask yourself, why don't these people ever learn from their mistakes? I mean, idolatry never works out well for them, but they keep going back to that dry well. Well, when I read it, I am not critical of them. The reason that I am not critical of them uh, is because in them I see myself. This is more of a mirror to me than it is a launching pad for me to be critical. It causes me to say... I know my history, I know very good theology, but yet like a dog going back to its vomit, I am prone to wander and I'm prone to leave the God that I love. Never, never say, I will never slip up. No, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. In Judges chapter 6, discipline comes through the Midianites and the Amalekites and these people of the east. We are like them. We keep going back to sin. Uh, one interesting thing about these people is not only were they massive in number, but they also had advanced military technology in the form of camels. Now, why were camels so uh, productive in what they were doing? Well, remember the last time we were together, we talked about Sisera and how he had the chariots. This was far better. They had camels, because a camel can travel about 30 miles a day. It can go three days without food or water. It had really long eyelashes, which could uh, help it go through sandy or dusty terrain. And and it, it, camels were uh, uh, just really powerful animals uh, that they, they could uh, they could carry up to six hundred pounds. And so I don't know if you know this, but the U.S. government at one time wanted to employ camels in their battles with the Native Americans. And they would have done that if it weren't for the Civil War, and then they had to redirect their energies. But, but camels are really very effective military tools. And the Midianites had numbers, they had technology, uh, yet it doesn't seem as though the Midianites were terribly violent Uh, And the reason I say that is because we don't read anything here about war, and why would you want to kill the people who are farming the land for you? But the people nevertheless were fearful, and they would go up into the hills into these caves, and this would happen for seven straight years. Israel would run and hide, and Midian would pick up the groceries and move on. This was the problem. Now, thankfully, Israel gets miserable enough that they cry out to God for help, and whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But the answer doesn't come right away in the form of deliverance. The answer, point number two, comes in the form of the prophet. God sends them a preacher and not a deliverer. Look at verses 7 through 10. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, here's your history lesson, here is your Bible story, I, Jehovah God, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you, that is, those in the land of Canaan, that is the book of Judges, and drove them out and gave you their land. That is the conquest of the land, verse 10. And I said to you, I am the Lord, Yahweh, your God. You shall not fear or serve or bow before the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So we don't know the prophet's name, We don't know what was accomplished through his sermon, but the prophet comes in, and he gives them the word of God. I think it is very significant that God here, before he offers them practical help, he explains what is happening and why it is happening. Listen to this quote, please, by Dale Ralph Davis. He says, sometimes we need to understand, sometimes we need understanding more than relief, Sometimes God must give us insight before he dare grant safety. Understanding God's way of holiness is more important than absence of pain. We may want out of a bind, whereas God wants us to see our idolatry. God means to instruct us, not to pacify us, end quote, and he's right. Do you understand what he's saying here? The people needed a sermon more than they needed deliverance. And it's really true because what is the value of fixing something if you don't understand why it broke? And how are you going to correct things in the future from happening again if you don't know why they happened in the first place? Uh, I'll tell you a story of a time when I did not learn a lesson. When I was a child, I used to go in my backyard and I... I, I love to pick up things and hit them with a baseball bat, whether it was walnuts or golf balls or baseballs or wiffle balls or whatever. Well, one day I got the bright idea that I was going to go in the backyard and I was going to hit a basketball. And I threw it up in the air and I took the bat. And when I hit the basketball, as a nine-year-old, I was not strong enough to move the basketball and basketballs bounce and things bounce off of basketballs and the bat came right back and gave me a really, really good shiner, a really nice black eye. Fast forward about 30 years, uh, I I am coaching a little league team of nine-year-olds and I think to myself, you know what would be good? If we could build their arm strength by getting them to hit something that is harder than a baseball, bigger than a baseball. And so I brought, I kid you not, a basketball to practice one day. And as I pitched the ball to the first batter on the first swing, he hit it with all of his might and gave himself a black eye on the the rebound. I think that's been a, a about 22 years ago i think the statute of limitations is over i think he's fine he's fine but what is the purpose what is the purpose of anything unless you learn your lesson israel needed a history lesson of god's goodness to them now i think that what you have here and i am going to attempt to be clever although i know that you will not laugh although you want to laugh you will not laugh but what the prophet preached here to Israel, it was the word of God. And so what the people heard literally was Gideon's Bible. And the truth of that play on words is actually more valuable than the cleverness of it, which I do not, I know you do not appreciate the cleverness of it, but nevertheless, Gideon and his people here are hearing the Bible. But God not only gives them his word, but he also gives them a deliverer, and a very unlikely deliverer, and that is Gideon, which moves us to point number three, and that is the promise. We're going to work through this slowly, beginning in verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the second person of the Trinity, um, uh, Gideon at this time, I do not think he knows that it is God that is talking to him, but, but Jesus will appear in pre-incarnate form known as a Christophany or a Theophany. Now, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah, uh, which belonged to Joash, the Abizrite, while his son, Gideon, was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. So so get the picture. God shows up to help these people, and he comes in the form of the angel of the Lord. Meanwhile, while this is happening, Gideon is threshing wheat. The way that you normally would do this would be in a public place on a very high hill where there would be a good breeze where you could fan it so that the chaff would blow away and that the grain would fall and you would have a, a, a good meal. Instead, what you have is this man Gideon, while the Midianites are moving in, in a private place, in a very, very, very rough spot... Down in a valley at a wine press, not with a winnowing fan, but with a little stick or a rod, just beating out a little bit here so that he can have a a, a tiny meal. If you go to do this, you do not do it in a wine press, because there is no breeze, there is no air movement uh, in this, this little town of Oprah. Uh, archaeologists tell us that the airflow in this particular valley in the wine press was so minimal that it was actually called Oprah Winfrey. (laughs) Oprah Winfrey. See, you missed me. You missed me. I got you. You didn't want to laugh, and I got you. Verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Wow, that is very curious. That is very ironic. Uh, it simply is not true. And so was Christ being comical? Was he being sarcastic? Was he using the power of positive thinking? Just if everyone all of a sudden were going to start calling me slim, maybe I would start to lose weight. Like, why does he call him, O oh, man of valor? I don't think he does it to be sarcastic or to produce the power of positive thinking. I think we need to hear what Christ says before he pronounces him a man of valor. Look at it again in verse 12. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, here's the important part, the Lord, Yahweh, is with you. Let that marinate, O mighty man of valor. Uh, His courage is going to come from the fact that the Lord is with him. Verse 13. Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us and they do not believe that he is, why then has all of this happened? And where are all of his wonderful works that our fathers recounted to us saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. <coughs> Gideon betrays the fact pardon me, that he has really horrible theology, and he expresses this horrible theology uh, the way that most people today do, errantly believing that if things are going well in the here and now in this life, then God is for us, and if, however, calamity or cancer or poverty or divorce happens, then God has forsaken us, which is just not true. You will hear people say ridiculous and blasphemous things like God has given up on me, or God has messed up, or God has forsaken me, or I am angry with God, which is just nonsense and more than nonsense. Gideon, God would not send you his word, nor would he pay you a personal visit if he had abandoned you. Your theology is really bad, really bad, verses 14 through 16. And the Lord, Yahweh, turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? Verse 15. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Remember that Manasseh was divided on either side of the Jordan River. It is considered one of the least important of the tribes, and he's just living on the eastern western side of that, and his family is not a prominent family. Verse 16, the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. You see, Gideon is like Moses. Uh, Moses essentially says to the Lord, you have the wrong man. I I am nobody, and and I come from a family of nobodies. So we need to look at this and ask ourselves the question, is Gideon being humble, or is it a case of unbelief? And I would say it is both, both. Uh, If someone expects God to show up and call them to greatness, That prideful attitude assures us that that person will never be used to do great things for God. On the other hand, if God shows up and says, I have something for you that I want you to do, I want you to be an elder, I want you to be a deacon, I want you to be a preacher, I want you to be a missionary, I want you to raise your family in a godly way, and you say to God, I'm not good enough, that is also a form of pride and it is unbelief because what you're doing is you are making it about yourself. I think Gideon was both humble and disobedient initially, and yet God does not take no for an answer. Did you know that the first time we asked Harry Fujiwara to come on staff and to work at this church, he initially said yes, and then he declined. And it wasn't Till a few years later that he actually came on staff. Just because someone initially says no, it doesn't always mean no. And God repeats to him a second time, he not taking no for an answer, I will be with you. Now, it's unclear at this point as to whether or not Gideon knew that the angel of the Lord was Christ, but that is going to be clarified in the next section where Gideon asks his new friend to stick around long enough for Gideon to bring him a present. And that is what we find in point number four, the peace, the peace. Uh, once again, we will move through this rather slowly, beginning with verse 17 through 19. And he said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you Who speak with me? I need to know who you are, and I'm going to ask for a sign. So here's how we're going to do this. Please do not depart. Do not leave from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. The Lord said to him, I will stay until you return. Verse 19. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket, the broth he put in a pot. And he brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. Uh, what you need to notice from these verses here is that this would have taken a very long time. Uh, and ephah here is somewhere between 35 and 40 pounds. And so this is a significant offering in any economy, but this is especially a significant offering when you're just scrounging around in a wine press trying to find just enough, meal, enough food for one meal. But he goes all in and he 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 spends an ephah of flour on this. He brings this sacrifice before the Lord. It would have taken a long time to do this. But the offering goes to show that Gideon was taking this seriously and that he was indeed a man of faith. Beginning in verses 20 and 21, we read, And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock, and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Verse 21. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. He's bringing him a meal to eat. The Lord says, I'm not hungry. Just take everything, put it on that rock over there, and pour the broth over top. He reaches out, puts his staff on it, Pyro, it just is consumed with the fire, and boom, the Lord disappears. He vanishes. Notice, Jesus does not eat the food, but he consumes it with fire. At this point, Gideon is fully aware that his visitor is God, and he is scared to death. Verse 22 And Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He he thinks that he is going to die, and that is a reasonable assumption based upon the Word of God, because remember what God said to Moses in Exodus 33.20. He says, You cannot see my face, for a man shall not see me and live. And so Gideon reasons, I just saw the face of God, and therefore I am a dead man. But in verses 23 and 24, we see that that is not going to happen, but God is the God of peace. Thus this heading, the peace. But the Lord, Yahweh, said to him, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. And to this day, that is to the day at which the book of Judges was written, probably by Samuel to this day, it still stands at Oprah, which belongs to the Abizrites. I find it very interesting and very significant, and I want you to catch this, that at the beginning of the story, you have a man who is fearful, but he is afraid of the Midianites. He meets God, and when he realizes that he meets God, he remains fearful, but he is now no longer afraid of the Midianites, but he is afraid of God. And this fear that he has totally vanishes from the Midianite perspective and is replaced with a fear of the Lord. And that is exactly what we need. We need to lose our fear of man, and we need to possess an intense fear of the Lord. God gives him this assurance, you're not going to die. In fact, quite the contrary, Gideon. The Lord is here to offer you peace. When the Lord says this to him, Gideon sets up an altar or a monument which stood for a very long time. And that monument revealed the covenant name of God, Jehovah Shalom, God our peace. In other words, I wanted to be learned and I wanted to be remembered for a long time after I'm dead that our covenant keeping God is a God of peace and he offers peace, Shalom, between himself and his people. He is not out to hurt us. He is not out to get us, but he is out to save us, and he is out to give us peace. Do you see the beautiful balance? And we need this balance in our emotions, in our lives, in our minds. Do you see the beautiful balance between God coming to him and saying, I will be with you, and also his majesty that he is to be feared and revered and reverenced. Once again, Dale Ralph Davis puts it this way, nothing is more assuring than God's, I will be with you. And nothing is more overwhelming than the fact that it is God who says it, end quote. We need that balanced view of God, his love and his tenderness and his desire to get close to us, and to be with us, and also his altogether otherness, his eminence, his majesty, his inapproachable glory, his terrifying, terrifying holiness, which caused men at the transfiguration to fall before the unveiled glory of Christ as dead men, or John on the Isle of Patmos when he saw the unveiled glory of Christ. Or as my three-year-old grandson said, Several years ago, when we took him to the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C., and there was a display of the burning bush, little Haddon says, God is very scary, but he loves us. I think he got it right. And Gideon gets it. And more importantly, he's told by God, not only that that, that I'm just not going to kill you, but there is actual peace between us. How did the peace occur? This is really important, and in fact, I think it's the most important thing that I'm going to say today. The fact that there was peace between God and Gideon did not happen until an offering was sacrificed, and God accepted the sacrifice that Gideon offered, and the sacrifice was consumed. Friends, I want to tell you today that God is holy and that he is to be feared and that he will not be mocked. He is scary and you cannot approach him. However, there was a sacrifice that was offered on Mount Calvary in the person of his son, Jesus. And God consumed that sacrifice with the fire of his wrath. Jesus took our sins and God poured out his wrath on Jesus. He touched it not with his staff, but with his rod and Jesus died for our sins. The gospel is of first importance. And the result, as the result of God accepting that sacrifice, we have proof because Jesus was raised from the dead. And now we who believe in Jesus, who trust in him, who call upon him, have peace with God. Romans 5 1. Therefore, we have peace. Shalom. We have peace with God. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Colossians 1.20, making peace by the blood of his cross. The turmoil and the unrest and the uncertainty of life is going to rage on. You're always going to have the Midianites with you, and it's never going to let up. And the Midianites are still a huge threat to Gideon and to us Man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. This life does not promise you any rest. But none of that matters if we are at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Gideon now has his priorities in line. He possesses a working knowledge that God is with him and that he is at peace with God, and really that is all you need. If you walk away with that, you have all you need. So I ask, are you at peace with God? Are you saved? Are you born again? Do you know him? If you do not even know what that means, but you want to be right with God, please come to me immediately after the service and allow me to talk to you and explain the gospel to you and tell you how you can be right with God through Jesus Christ. Which brings us to point number five. It is Gideon's first assignment, and this is the provocation. He provokes his own people who are in sin, his own family. Now that Gideon's heart is changed, it's time to clean up the idolatry in the community. And here is his assignment. His fellow Jews are worshiping Baal, and the who is the fertility god, and his girlfriend Ashtoreth. And God gives Gideon a very tough job in verses 25 through 32. Listen as I read. That night, and I think it's significant that it is that night, so it is right away that the Lord puts Gideon to work. That night, Yahweh, the Lord, said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, that's as long as the Midianites have been invading, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut the Ashereth that is Baal's girlfriend, it is, a, it is a, a, a a sexual god that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold there. So tear down the altar and then build an altar to the Lord here with the stones you laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Ashereth that you have cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had, had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. This story not only shows us the obedience and the courage of Gideon, which I think is wonderful, but it also demonstrates in the next text that his father may well have been converted in the process of this happening notice what happens as we read on beginning in verse 28 when the men of the town rose early in the morning behold the altar of baal was broken down i find it significant that these idolatrous people were very committed to their religion they got up early to pray this was important to them behold the altar of baal was broken down the asherah beside it was cut down the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. They said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. So if you're trying to keep a secret with ten men, you're not really trying to keep a secret at all. Verse 30, then the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Will you fight for Baal? Will you defend Baal? Does Baal need your help? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him will be put to death by morning. If he is a god, if Baal is really a god, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Baal. Jerubo- Jerubo- that is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. Do You see the beauty of this. Obviously, Gideon's father was some sort of a priest, an idolatrous priest. And he comes out and he sees all of his work is torn down and the Asherah pole has been burned. And the people say, your son is the one that did this. He needs to die. And his dad says, um, no, you're not going to touch him. Uh, If he's going to be touched, if he's going to be destroyed, if he's going to be killed, Baal is the one that's going to do it. I mean, if Baal is a real god, then let Baal fight for himself. And if you fight for Baal, well, I will kill you. Uh, What kind of a god, small d, needs you to defend him? And the answer is a dead god. A A dead god needs a lot of help, and yet we spend a lot of time nurturing and propping up and and tending to and defending our dead idols. John Knox, it was the Scottish reformer, was ordered to bow before an image of the Virgin Mary. And so Knox picked up the image and threw it into the river and said, let our lady now save herself. She is light enough. Let her learn how to swim. I think Knox got it right. And I think Joash was right. If Baal is God, then he can defend himself. You see, Elijah knew this on Mount Carmel when he was going to battle with the prophets of Baal. He was not afraid to mock the prophets in saying, well, why hasn't your God sent down fire? Maybe he's off using the men's room. That's that's what Elijah says. Why can he use such mockery? Because Baal doesn't exist. There is no God there at all. And perhaps we should be more confident and bold to expose and to confront the idolatry that we see in our families and in our society whether it is visible idolatry such as statues of mary and jesus or icons of the saints and i'm not saying that you go home this afternoon with a baseball bat and smash mary on the half shell out of your mother's front yard i'm not saying this at all but to confront it verbally and say, this is idolatry, or to confront spiritual idolatry, such as people who prioritize work or money or activity over the worship of God. Whatever the idol is, we need to be more bold in order to confront it. If we just understand the rationale of Gideon's father, idols are not alive. They cannot hurt you. They have no power. They are a dog without teeth. I, I, I always find it amazing that when I watch a scary movie that I am actually scared. Because what is happening is I'm sitting in a house where the doors are locked, and I am protected, and, and, and I am looking at a piece of glass and plastic that's showing a light in my direction, and yet I am afraid of what is happening there. But in reality, there is no reality. Why are we afraid of scary movies? Why are we afraid of idols? Idols are not real. Idols cannot defend themselves, and they cannot hurt you. Gideon provoked his fellow Jews by tearing down their idols. We should not be afraid to do the same. Which brings us to point number 6, verses 33 through 35. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. If you're keeping score, this is year number 8, that they are coming over for their groceries. Here's the key, the power. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet... And the Abizrites were called to follow him, and he sent messengers throughout all of Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him, and he sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali, and they went up to meet him. What a contrast between a guy with a stick in a wine press trying to pound out a little meal, and the new Gideon who was blowing the trumpet and rallying an army together. What made the difference? The difference was made by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Now, I understand that the ministry of the Spirit in the Old Testament and the ministry of the Spirit in the New Testament is different, but it is the same Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon select individuals for a specific purpose. In the New Testament, the Spirit indwells every New Covenant believer. And so we should have boldness by the Holy Spirit as well. How in the world does one go from being a timid, non-confrontational, fearful, meek person who would never dream about speaking up for Christ at work or at school or in the neighborhood and turned into a bold witness who will tell everybody about Jesus and do so fearlessly and unashamedly. What makes the difference? The difference is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us power and boldness. You might say, well, I could never bring up Jesus to my coworkers." That's right. Left to yourself, Gideon, you in the wine press could not. But the power of the Holy Spirit enables us to be his witnesses. Acts 1.8 You will be my witnesses. How does that happen when we are empowered by the Holy Spirit? Gideon was hiding in private, and now he is publicly putting an army together, and the Holy Spirit makes the difference. Any difference that we have in our lives to step forward and be bold is also by the Holy Spirit. Which brings us to the final point, number seven, and that is the proof. This is probably the thing that Gideon is known best for, and that is the fleece. Let me read it, and then I will try to analyze it. Verses 36 through the end of the chapter. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and... It is dry on all the ground. Then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung out enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. He gets there. The ground is dry, picks up the fleece. It's heavy. He wrings it out, and he's able to fill out, fill up with, with the dew an entire bowl of water. Beginian's thinking to himself, you know what? Wool attracts moisture. And since wool attracts moisture, maybe it just sort of is, that's the way that, that, that science works. And, and maybe I didn't ask the right thing. And so I need more proof. And so here's what Gideon says to God in verse 39. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Uh, please let me uh, test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. And so now he has his proof. Most Bible commentators are critical of Gideon here. And their argument is this, Gideon, you did not need to do this in order to know what the will of God was. I mean, for crying out loud, the Lord has appeared to you. Twice he has said he will be with you. He consumed the sacrifice with fire. Then he disappeared. Then he pronounced peace. Then he enabled you to tear down your father's idol without any consequences. He filled you with his spirit, and he enabled you to recruit an entire army. You do not need any more evidence. Therefore, they say, asking for a sign twice with the fleece was a lack of faith. All right. I understand that. There are other commentators who say, let's not be so critical. Because God himself was willing to do the fleece miracle. uh, And if God was willing to put up with it, maybe we should as well. I mean, if you were in his shoes, would you not want as much evidence as possible before you went to battle? I tend to agree with those who are critical. I do not think he needed more information. But let's just say for the sake of argument that I am wrong and that the whole Gideon fleece thing was the will of God and that's what he should have done. Even if that is the case, let me say to you who live in the New Covenant era, You should never, under any circumstances, ever try to determine the will of God by putting out a fleece, either figuratively or literally. And have you ever noticed that every person who ever puts out a fleece now never puts out a fleece? They always say, well, all right, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And if the next person who walks in the door is wearing a hat, well, then I know that I'm supposed to move to Arizona. But if he's not wearing a hat, I know that I'm not. No, how about this? Why don't you go out and get a sheep and kill it and get some wool and lay it on the ground and see if something happens there. See if, see if you can get a miracle to happen that way. We should not be putting God to the test. And when we do, we are, we have very little difference from people who go to card readers who, who, who lay down cards who tell the future. You should never put God to the test. I remember hearing a story once of a guy who, who was at a bus station. And he called his father. And he says, Dad, am I supposed to go to college or am I supposed to come home? And the guy's father said, well, if the next bus is heading toward your college town, you know that's God's will. And if the next bus that is leaving is heading toward home, you know that is God's will. You do not determine God's will by a bus schedule. God's will for us is determined by prayer and counsel and circumstances, I can tell you, God is not calling me to be a jockey. I, I, I know that with certainty. I don't need a fleece to know that by our desires. I love what St. Augustine said. He said, love God and do whatever you want. Uh, We determine God's will through open doors. We determine God's will through his word. We determine God's will through the voice of his spirit. All of these things together. But putting out a fleece is putting God to the test. I told you this story before. It bears repeating. I met with a man one time who said uh, that he was living in Ohio and that everything had fallen apart for him. I said, why did you move to Ohio? He said, we set a map on the floor of our living room and we had a baby that was crawling across the map and wherever he would stop and point first, that's where we were supposed to move. I said, well, how are things going for you? He goes, it's horrible. I don't have a job. I, I can't pay my rent. Uh, we don't have any friends. It's like, yeah, you knucklehead, you you had a baby point to a spot on the map. Back to Gideon. God acquiesces to his request. Gideon picks up the dry fleece the second morning, and it is proof that God is with him and against the Midianites. Well, that's chapter 6. We're going to get on to chapters 7 and 8 in the near future. But for now, let me make three practical observations from this text. Number one, Israel was in sin, and it caused them to cry out to God. If things start to go bad in your life, you need to ask yourself, is God trying to get my attention? Am I being disciplined by God? Is he doing this in order to bring about repentance in my life? Israel went seven years under Midianite oppression before they cried out to God. That is too long. That is too stubborn. That is too insensitive and deaf. Tune into the voice of the Spirit of God and be aware that whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And if you realize that God is trying to get your attention, then please confess and repent and cry out to God for help. Number two, the presence of God is what we need more than anything else. Twice in this passage, verse 12 and verse 16, God says the Lord is with you, and in verse 16 it says, the Lord said to him, I will be with you. You plus the Lord puts you In the majority. All you need is for God to go with you. The commission of Gideon is important, but the companionship of God is more important. And this is how God equips us to move forward as his servants. It is not our own strength. Uh, Our courage, our assurance, our peace, our confidence is solely rooted in the fact that God is with us. God comes to Moses in Exodus 3.12, and he says, I will be with you. And then God comes to Joshua in Joshua 1.5, and he says, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And he says this to Jacob in Genesis 28.15, behold, I am with you. And in Deuteronomy, speaking to Israel, Deuteronomy 21, the Lord your God is with you. You know the passage from Psalm 23, thou art with me. Isaiah 41.10, fear not for I am with you. Isaiah 43.2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Isaiah 43.5, fear not for I am with you. Paul gets a word from the Lord in Acts 10. I am with you, and no one will attack you and harm you. And the Great Commission where Jesus said in Matthew 28, 20, Lo, I am with you always. If Jesus goes with me, I'll go anywhere. God calls us to different tasks and different challenges, but as long as the Lord is with us, we will be sustained, we will be victorious. Madison, you're going to Athens, Georgia. God is going with you. Jackson, you're going down there, you're taking on a new job at Cleveland Road Baptist Church. God is with you, and that is all you need. Observation number three, God is often pleased to use the weak, the unqualified, and the fearful, the people who are nothing in the eyes of the world in order to accomplish his purposes. Moses says, I can't do it. Gideon says, I can't do it. When someone asks you to serve and do a task in the church which is too big for you and you feel unqualified, guess what? You are right. And guess what else? That is irrelevant. That means nothing to God. It is totally irrelevant. The only people that God can't and won't use are proud, arrogant, self-confident people because he opposes the proud. But God delights to use the Gideons of this world to advance his kingdom. And he accomplishes his greatest work through people who in the eyes of the world are nothing. For example, a man born in a stable, raised in an obscurity of a carpenter shop in Nazareth, and a man who died in shame. You need to stop looking at yourself. That is prideful. And you need to ask the question, what is God calling me to do it? And if God calls you to it, he will go with you and he will equip you. North Shore Baptist Church, we need elders. We need teachers. We need leaders. We need preachers. And if God is calling you to serve this church, it doesn't matter who you are. Stop looking at yourself. doesn't matter who you are. It is his strength that is magnified in your weakness. God often uses the most unlikely people, means, and circumstances in order to accomplish his purposes, and he does it for his glory. Father in heaven, I pray that we, if we are being disciplined, will be sensitive to your spirit and repent. Lord, I pray that we will leave here confident that you are going with us. Lord, if there's anybody in this room that you are calling to your service, would you please immediately now, Lord, please stop this person from looking at themselves and look to what you are calling them to do. In Christ's name, amen.